So in the last class, we spent a lot of time talking about the mechanism for wound healing. We talked about partial thickness repair. We talked about full thickness repair. We broke that down into the repair process for acute wounds like surgical incisions and for chronic wounds like pressure injuries, diabetic foot ulcers. And we concluded by talking about the many factors that impact on the repair process. We talked about the cells in the wound bed. We talked about the critical importance of growth factors and cytokines and the role of MMPs and TIMPs in controlling levels of growth factors and cytokines. Now, we also said that there were many systemic conditions, comorbid conditions, that could impact positively or negatively on the repair process, and that's going to be the focus of this class. So we're going to describe the impact of each of the following on repair, and we're going to focus on the implications for nursing management. Perfusion and oxygenation, tobacco use, nutritional status, diabetes and hyperglycemia, corticosteroids, normal um, NSAIDs and chemotherapy, comorbid conditions, denervation, obesity, and aging. We're gonna have a specific focus on nutritional management, so we're gonna describe key factors to be included in a nutritional assessment and guidelines for determining an individual's nutritional needs. We're gonna talk about guidelines for use of nutritional supplements and enteral feedings to support repair. So you're gonna watch this video, you're gonna complete the online um, learning exercises, and if you want more information, you should go to chapters two and six in the core curriculum. So obviously, perfusion and oxygenation are critical to the repair process. You wanna think of oxygen as the fuel for the repair process. You wanna think of perfusion as critical because it takes the needed cells to the wound bed, the needed nutrients to the wound bed. So without perfusion, essentially there is no way to get the critical cells to the wound bed, no way to deliver critical supplies to the wound bed. So perfusion's like the open highways and delivery system. Now, when we talk about oxygen, we know that adequate levels of oxygen are essential for white blood cell activity. We talked about the fact that white blood cells use oxygen to phagocytize bacteria. Oxygen is also essential for collagen synthesis. So when fibroblasts are synthesizing new collagen strands, proteoglycan strands, they have to have oxygen. Oxygen literally fuels that repair process. So if you have an ischemic hypoxic wound, none of those things are going to happen. Oxygen is also required for epithelial resurfacing. So an important question to ask and answer is, how much oxygen? What's the essential level of oxygen in the wound bed? And we know that optimal levels of oxygen differ based on the phase of repair. For example, during the inflammatory phase, when you're trying to establish bacterial control, you're trying to break down necrotic tissue, your white blood cells are very active, oxygen levels are somewhat, or oxygen requirements are somewhat higher than during the proliferative rebuilding phase. When you look kind of across the um, whole scope of wound healing, 
the critical level seems to be 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury. We actually have the ability to measure transcutaneous oxygen levels, so oxygen levels in the tissues around the wound. And what we found is that if the oxygen levels are above 40, essentially all wounds are going to heal unless there's something else that interferes. If oxygen levels are consistently around 30, wound healing is variable. Once oxygen levels drop to 20 or below, healing does not occur. So you really would like to see levels throughout the repair process of 40 or above, certainly not below 30. That means as wound clinicians, we have to address conditions and factors that affect tissue perfusion and oxygenation. Unrelieved pressure. So we talked extensively in previous classes about the negative impact on tissue compression because when you compress the tissues, you compress the blood vessels running through those tissues and you create ischemia of the wound bed. So we have to be positioning our patients on a routine basis. What about cardiovascular disease? <clears throat> as long as there's enough blood flow to maintain tissue viability, there's typically enough oxygen to support wound healing. But if you have severe peripheral arterial disease, that's going to compromise healing of any lower extremity wounds. When you have significant edema, edema puts water between the bloodstream and the wound bed and interferes with oxygenation of the wound bed. So we always have to control edema if we want the wound to heal. What about anemia? We don't have an exact cutoff for the point at which anemia starts to interfere with wound healing. But we do know that when you have significant, clinically significant anemia, what does that mean? It means that you have less, fewer red blood cells available to carry oxygen to the wound bed. So yes, clinically significant anemia as your hemoglobin drops to below eight, to below six, that's definitely going to interfere with wound healing. So you wanna pay attention, what's your hemoglobin level? <clears throat> so is the wound perfused? What's the hemoglobin level? Are we routinely offloading the tissues so that the tissues do get adequate blood flow? And what about smoking? Smoking has a very negative impact on wound healing, as we know, and we know that smoking causes vasoconstriction and that it also interferes with oxygenation of the red blood cell. So we definitely want to address that. Now, what about supplemental oxygen? So one question that's been asked is, okay, oxygen's critical for repair. If we want to really optimize the repair process, like postoperatively, would it be helpful to give patients supplemental oxygen? Now, there's a few studies that suggest that supplemental oxygen might be beneficial, even in people who have normal oxygen levels. Definitely not enough evidence to say, yes, we should do this, but enough, interested, enough information to say we should keep studying this. Right now, what I want you to focus on is you have to assure adequate blood flow to the wound. So you need, if you touch the peri-wound tissue, it's viable, it's warm, 
you've got good pulses in the area, then you know you're getting adequate perfusion. What about edema? Control your edema. Think about anemia. And if you have major concerns as to whether or not your wound bed is being adequately perfused, think about getting TCPO2 measures to assure that your levels are 40 millimeters of mercury or above. Now we already mentioned smoking tobacco use. We know how negative it is. We also know how hard it is to stop smoking. So people will tell you it's the hardest thing they've ever done in their lives. Some people will tell you it's not worth it to them. So what's our role? We want to make sure patients understand. So it's very helpful to say probably people have talked to you about smoking and the negative impact on getting your wound to heal. I can't make that decision for you. I wanna make sure you understand why we're recommending this, why you keep hearing us talk about this. So we wanna make sure they understand how smoking impacts on wound repair. We wanna make sure that they understand that we will provide them support if they're ready to try smoking cessation or at least a reduction in tobacco use that we can provide them with education, we can provide them with counseling, we can connect them with support groups, we can provide them with nicotine replacement therapy. So I've heard people say, well, if we put them on the patch, isn't that also going to interfere with wound healing? Not nearly as much as ongoing tobacco use. So is it appropriate to offer patches, nicotine replacement therapy? Yes, it is. What about nutrition? Nutrition is absolutely essential. So many times you find that people are doing all kinds of things to try to get a wound to heal, but they haven't really addressed nutritional status. And then you think, well, if we're gonna make new tissue, what do we use to make new tissue? We use amino acids, we use proteins. Where does that come from? Our diet. So if you have a patient who is losing weight unintentionally, <clears throat> if you have a patient with inadequate nutrient intake, you know that wound is not going to heal until you address nutritional status and correct those deficits. So here are the things we know. You have to have positive nitrogen balance, adequate protein intake, if you're going to make new tissue. We know that the essential nutrients are adequate calories, adequate levels of protein intake, adequate levels of vitamin C, zinc, and iron. We know that anyone who's malnourished, anyone with inadequate intake, is at significant risk for delayed healing or total failure to heal. So we're gonna talk about nutrition in more detail at the end of this. What about diabetes and hyperglycemia? Well, we kept talking about the we kept talking about this when we were talking about factors impacting on repair as we went through the repair um, process. So here are some numbers that are really important to you as a clinician, and you want to share these numbers with your patients. What we know is that as glucose levels rise above 180, there's a negative impact on white blood cell function. So I tell my patients, think about how you feel after Thanksgiving dinner. <clears throat> What do you want to do? Nothing. You want to lay on the couch and maybe watch football on TV, right? That's your white blood cells 
when glucose levels are under over 180. They're like in a sugar coma. So they can see the bacteria. They know they need to kill the bacteria, but right now they're just so tired. They have to rest. So do you have active white blood cell function? Do you have phagocytosis when your glucose levels are elevated above 180? No. So patients have heard that diabetes interferes with their ability to fight infection. We want to take that a step further and we want them to understand that this is how. When your sugar levels are over 180, it paralyzes your white blood cells. So that helps them set a goal, keep my glucose levels under 180 so that I can actively fight infection. What about the whole process of granulation tissue formation, collagen synthesis, epithelial resurfacing, neoangiogenesis? That's negatively impacted if glucose levels are over 140. So they've done a lot of studies, especially in patients undergoing cardiac surgery. And they found that if they could maintain glucose levels between 110 and 140, that they had much lower incidence of infection and much better rates of wound healing. So it brought down dehiscence rates, brought down infection rates, promoted healing without complications if glucose levels were controlled. So remember, hyperglycemia interferes with collagen synthesis, interferes with cross-linking and tensile strength, interferes with epithelial resurfacing. So obviously, if we could keep people at normal glycemic levels between 110 and 140, then we're going to promote wound healing. So we want to educate our patients. We want to see if they're willing to make a concerted effort to keep their glucose levels in a healthy range at least until we get this wound to heal. So a lot of people can commit to doing things on a short-term basis. If I said to them, I want you to commit to keeping your glucose levels under 140 for the rest of your life, that's overwhelming. But if I say, could you commit to working really hard to keep your glucose levels under 140 until we get this wound to heal, a lot of people are like, yes, I can do that. So we know that diabetes in and of itself is associated with high levels of inflammatory substances, low levels of growth factors, which tends to um, promote inflammation and just keep the wound in that inflammatory cycle. But we also know if we can get those glucose levels down, we can frequently keep the wound on track and move it forward. So there's your goals. You wanna share them with your patients. Glycemic goal, 110 to 140, and hemoglobin A1C less than seven. What about corticosteroids? That's another thing that we've heard as long as we've been in nursing is that steroids interfere with healing. That's usually all we know, they interfere with healing. Well, how do they interfere with healing? Turns out that you get impaired neoangiogenesis, impaired inflammatory response, impaired contraction, impaired epithelialization. Now, the impairment appears to be dose-related. So many patients tolerate low-dose steroids, 10 to 20 milligrams of prednisone a day, relatively well. 
but as the dose rises, and especially as it rises to more than 30 milligrams a day, they see more and more interference with repair. Now, I've talked to a lot of patients who are, are on low-dose steroids, like 20 a day, and they're like, there's definitely interference with healing. It takes me a lot longer to heal a wound. If I get a wound, it's much more likely to become infected. So just be aware, steroids do impact, appears to be dose-related. What can we do about that? Well, we have very little research in this area, but we have limited evidence that topical vitamin A can at least partially counteract the negative effects of steroids, and how does it do that? Well, the primary negative effect of steroids is impaired uh, migration of white blood cells into the wound bed. So if you can't get white blood cells into the wound bed, you're not gonna establish a clean wound bed. You're not gonna get bacterial levels under control and you're gonna get, you are going to get a wound stuck in the inflammatory phase. It doesn't move through. <clears throat> it turns out that vitamin A has the opposite effect on white blood cells. It invites them into the wound and promotes white blood cell migration. So way back in a not very well done study, <clears throat> they looked at topical vitamin A to see if it could make a difference. So the way they set up the study was pretty interesting. They looked at use of topical vitamin A in patients who were not on steroids and in patients who were on steroids. So for patients who were not on steroids, they created two wounds, one on each arm. Patients who were on steroids, two wounds, one on each arm. And then one wound on each arm was treated with topical vitamin A and the other with just standard moist wound healing. And what they found was that topical vitamin A made no difference to the patient who was not on steroids. So if I'm the one not on steroids, vitamin A wound, non-vitamin A wound, no difference. But for the patients on steroids, the wounds treated with vitamin A um, healed at a much faster rate than those that were just treated with standard moist wound healing. So is there evidence? Yes. Is it strong evidence? No. But here's the thing. For most patients, a short-term trial of topical vitamin A, say two weeks, there would be no contraindications. There would be you know, no adverse effects. About the only time you'd have to worry about using topical vitamin A, you'd have to think, hmm, is this okay? Let me be sure that I've cleared this with the physician is a patient in um, liver failure. If you're going to use topical vitamin A, what you would do, it's not gonna do very much in the inflammatory phase because that's when you have a lot of slough and everything in the wound beds. But once you establish a clean wound bed, you can literally take vitamin A capsules, cut off the end, squeeze the vitamin A solution into the wound bed, and then follow with your dressing. And so typically it's done once a day, 25,000 to 100,000 international units for two weeks to see, okay, does it seem to be helping or not? So again, very weak evidence, but also very low risk. Are there other medications that can negatively impact on healing? Yes. So people who are on high-dose NSAIDs, those are also anti-inflammatory. They have similar effects to steroids. 
they can interfere. You've probably heard that. You've probably been told if you had a wound, avoid ibuprofen because it can interfere with wound healing. True. Chemotherapy will stop wound healing in its tracks, as will radiation therapy because both of those are cytotoxic. So if I'm consulted on a wound for a patient on chemotherapy or on radiation, I make it clear to everyone. At this point in time, our goal is just to prevent deterioration. We're trying to prevent infection, just assure that the wound bed remains viable. We do not expect healing until radiation is completed, until chemotherapy has completed, and the cells are again able to proliferate. So you just have to modify your goals until they get through their cytotoxic therapy. What about comorbid conditions? Well, the body's a system, and all the systems interrelate. So if I have end-stage liver disease, is it going to affect my ability to heal? Yes. If I have end-stage renal disease, yes. So all comorbid conditions can negatively impact on healing. The body can only manage so many things at a time. So we always wanna do everything possible to manage comorbid conditions in order to support wound healing. Now, what about denervation? If you work with spinal cord injured patients or spina bifida patients, you might have noticed that wounds below their level of injury heal very, very slowly and may not heal durably. In other words, you may think you got that wound to heal and then very minor trauma causes the wound to open back up. So there's been a little bit of research to try to determine what's different in this patient population that would be negatively impacting on wound repair. And what we have found is that there are reduced levels of some of the neuropeptides that attract the white blood cells, the neuropeptides, to establish a clean wound bed. Remember when you get the macrophages into the wound, not only do they help clean up the wound bed, but they in turn produce growth factors that attract the fibroblasts. So it makes sense that if you're not getting normal levels of macrophages and neutrophils into the wound bed, that would negatively impact the entire repair process, exactly what happens with um, patients who are on steroids. What can we do about it? At this point, the main thing we know is just that it's gonna take longer for those wounds to heal. So we have to be patient and explain to the patient that it's probably gonna take longer, but we're gonna just be looking for slow, progressive improvement. What about obesity? How many of your patients are obese or morbidly obese? So we know those patients are very high risk. What if they require surgery? Well, anytime you have a patient with obesity or morbid obesity, we know the sub-Q tissue, even healthy sub-Q tissue in normal volumes is poorly perfused. But if I have morbid obesity, in addition to having a large amount of tissue that's poorly perfused and high risk for infection, I also have increased tissue weight that is creating abnormal tension on the incision that can promote dehiscence. We want to do everything we can with nutritional management. We also have to realize up front, these wounds are at risk. We should be using abdominal binders routinely to provide support 
to those incisions and hopefully to prevent dehiscence. Aging, now what are we gonna do with this? Well, again, we're primarily going to take an extra dose of patients and prescribe it for our patients as well. Many factors associated with aging have a negative impact on repair. So we know that there are reduced growth factor receptor sites. We have to worry about cellular senescence, so slowed cellular reproduction, less activity in granulation tissue formation, and an epithelial resurfacing. Also, a compromised inflammatory response. So once again, you see all phases of repair negatively impacted by a reduction in growth factor receptor sites, negatively impacted by cellular senescence. We know we're gonna see impaired, delayed, prolonged healing in our much older patients. And every year, we're gonna have more patients over 90, more patients over 100. So there's research ongoing to determine, okay, can we reverse cellular senescence? What can we do? In the meantime, we provide meticulous wound care. We follow all of our principles. We monitor very closely. And we recognize that we're not going to see the same rate of improvement as we would in someone who is 50. Now we're gonna spend the last little bit talking about nutritional management for wound healing. We know that our patients who are malnourished are very high risk for breakdown. They're also very high risk for delayed healing or total failure to heal. One of the things that makes it really difficult is that when you're chronically ill, you produce inflammatory substances that result in significant anorexia. So when your patients say, I have no appetite, they have no appetite. When they tell you nothing tastes good, that's right, nothing tastes good. When they tell you, I eat a few bites, I force myself to eat a few bites and I'm just so full. All of those are expected outcomes in people who are chronically ill because of changes in metabolism and because of inflammatory substances that are produced. So nutrition is almost always a concern. We should routinely be assessing our patients for nutritional status using a validated age-appropriate tool. So there's a number out there. I'm sure that the nutritional team in your agency probably has a tool that they're using. And any patient with a wound who has compromised nutritional status has to have nutritional intervention if we're gonna get the wound to heal. So we have to assess them, we have to educate them, we have to provide appropriate intervention. So let's talk about nutritional assessments. So there's four components. First of all, we should look at anthropometric data and primarily we want to look at current weight as compared to usual weight. So is their weight stable? Are they gaining weight? Are they losing weight? We want to look at lab data, but we want to realize that laboratory data is never a standalone indicator of nutritional status. So it's contributing data, but it's not definitive. We want to look very carefully at clinical data. So what's going on with the wound? Failure to heal despite correction of etiologic factors 
management of other systemic factors and appropriate topical therapy is a very major indicator of nutritional compromise. So I have a wound that's clean, but it's not granulating. Even though I've done all of these other things, where are my two nutritionally? Where's the patient two with nitrogen balance? Are they gaining weight? Are they losing weight? What are they eating? What are they drinking? What supplements are they getting? What if I have a patient who has very sparse, easily pluckable hair? What if they have multiple lesions along the mucous membranes? All of those are signs of nutritional impairment. So we wanna look at the wound, look at the patient, compare present weight to usual weight, factor in labs, and then we also want to make sure we do know how much the patient's currently getting in. So probably in your setting, as well as most, you have the option to complete calorie counts or to keep a record of nutrient intake and then the dietary or nutritional department will take that record and they will determine exactly what the patient's caloric intake for the day, protein intake for the day is. And that allows you to determine what is the gap. How much do they need that they're not getting? And then that can be the basis for education and for intervention. Now, these are a couple of tools that are commonly used for adults in the pediatric setting. They have other tools. So you might be using the mini nutritional assessment or the MUST, malnutrition universal screening tool. So let's break down that assessment a little bit more. Unintended weight loss, a major indicator of malnutrition. So what's the cutoff? Any patient who has lost 10% of their usual weight in the last six months. So if they say, I usually weigh 150, I've weighed 150 for years, but now they weigh 130, well, 10% of their usual weight is 15 pounds. They've lost 20 pounds. So you want to ask them, over what time frame have you lost that weight? So if they've lost 10% or more in the last six months, if they've lost 5% or more in the last 30 days. So I was talking to someone um, who did a lot of legal chart review related to agency-acquired pressure injuries. She said one of the first things she looked at was the weight chart because she had found that that was the first indicator that the patient was getting into trouble and that once she saw the weight declining, it was typically just a matter of weeks before she started seeing deterioration in skin status. So look at weight, look at their BMI, because even if their BMI is stable, if their BMI is less than 18.5, if they're very cachectic, they have nothing to heal with. So patients who are losing weight, patients who are very cachectic, definitely need nutritional intervention. Looking at labs, what are you looking at? Well, you can look at albumin levels, that's a serum protein. You can look at pre-albumin, another serum protein. So albumin that's less than three, pre-albumin, um, that should say less than 10. Both of those are very significant findings. So albumin less than three, pre-albumin less than 10. Those are indicators of malnutrition. Here's the problem with those labs. Your protein, your serum protein levels can be affected by so many things. They're 
affected by hydration, they're affected by infection, they're in, impacted by inflammation, by systemic um, compromise. So yes, if you have a patient who's losing weight and they have low albumin and low prealbumin and there are clinical indicators, then your labs are supporting your assessment of malnutrition, but they are not standalone indicators. You cannot diagnose malnutrition just based on your lab work. Now, why do you see a lot of clinicians using prealbumin more than albumin? And it has to do with the half-life of albumin and the half-life of prealbumin. So albumin has a long half-life. It's very slow to change in response to nutritional changes. Prealbumin has a much shorter half-life, changes much more rapidly. So a lot of clinicians prefer to use prealbumin if they're trying to get an indication of what's going on from a laboratory test. But your clinical signs and symptoms, very significant. What can you do about it? You're gonna have lots of patients who fall into the category of malnourished and who need nutritional intervention if you're ever gonna get this wound to heal. So the first thing you need to do is to calculate their nutritional needs. Now there are some very complicated formulas like the Harris-Benedict equation that a lot of the nutritionists use. But this is a very simple approach and it gives you pretty accurate numbers. So this is what I use when I'm talking to patients, educating patients. I take their current weight in kilograms, and in order to determine their caloric needs for healing, I multiply their current weight in kilograms times 30 or 35. I usually start with 30. It's easier and it gives them a starting point. So if I have somebody, I was talking to a patient last week, he's right at 70 kilograms. So I'm like, okay, right now, we're gonna set your goals as you're gonna to try to get in 2,100 calories a day, and you're going to try to get in right at 100 grams of protein a day. So use current weight, 30 to 35 calories per kilogram of body weight, protein, 1.2 to 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight a day, and of course, about 30 milliliters of fluid per kilogram of body weight per day. So that gives you a target. That can be very helpful because otherwise what tends to happen is you're saying, the patient, saying to the patient, you know, we're never gonna get this wound to heal if we don't increase your protein intake and your caloric intake. So you've really got to eat more, drink more of your supplements. And then the patient says what? I know I'm really trying, I'm just not hungry and I get full so fast and nothing tastes right. And then what do I say? I understand that's really common when somebody's been sick for a long time, but it's really so important for you to eat more if we're gonna get this wound to heal. Then the patient tells me again that they have no appetite, nothing tastes good, and they get full really fast. So we're just carrying on parallel conversations. But if instead I say, let's set some goals and let's look at how you can meet those goals. So my patient last week said, so looking at this insure in live, I can drink that. How many would I need to drink a day? So we talked about what he was getting in through what he ate, how many insure in live shapes he would need, how he could space them out. 
I also told him right now when you have practically no appetite and you get full really fast and it's exhausting to you to eat, I don't want you to focus on your fruits and vegetables. Yes, those are things that are good for you, but right now I want you to focus on calories and protein. So I want you to eat your meat and your starches and your dessert. And so his wife said, in other words, he should eat everything I'm trying to avoid because she was on a diet to lose weight. I'm like, exactly. So help people establish goals so then they can see progress. Because when I came back, he said, okay, I'm up to two to three of the shakes a day and I'm eating a little more at each meal. I'm just making myself eat a little more at each meal, okay, because he had a very specific goal. So work with your patients to set specific goals and work with your nutritional department because they have all kinds of tricks up their sleeves. They know supplements like we know wound dressings. And so they can help your patient, they can help you and your patient pick the best supplements, face them correctly. What about enteral feedings? So first of all, we tend to think about this as a good option for patients who aren't getting in enough nutrients and need nutritional support for wound healing. Interestingly, we have very little data that says that enteral feedings effectively meet nutritional needs in a way that promotes wound healing. So maybe, maybe not, there are definitely potential complications associated with enteral feedings like aspiration and diarrhea. But if you have a patient who just cannot get in enough, even with supplements, then that is the next step up the nutritional ladder is enteral feeding. So you would be working with the patient, with the family, with the nutritional team to determine, is this a valid step for this patient? And finally, IV nutrition, um, which is used in very selected situations. So think about supplements. Supplements can be very helpful. So if you have very little energy, very little appetite, and I bring in a tray, it's overwhelming to you. It takes you a lot of energy to eat a small amount. So you might expend 30 minutes of effort and a lot of calories trying to ingest 200 calories. So if you're overwhelmed by solid food but, and you just can't get enough in, those are the people who benefit tremendously from supplements because it's much easier to drink an eight to 10 ounce bottle of supplement than it is to chew up meat and swallow it, eat my starch, whatever. So you want to pick one that's high calorie, high protein, and ideally you would pick a supplement that was not only high protein, high calorie, but that was also enriched with arginine, zinc, and antioxidants. So your vitamins are antioxidants, I can't talk today, antioxidants, so like vitamin A. There's a specific supplement that was referenced in the most recent version of the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel Guidelines for promotion of wound healing, and that is Arginate Extra, which is high calorie, high protein, enriched with arginine, zinc, and antioxidants. 
So if you have access to that, that would be a very good thing to recommend to your patient. But work with your nutritional support team. Now, what about things that we have typically recommended to patients? What about multivitamins every day? Should they all be taking multivitamins? Should they be taking vitamin C? Should they be taking um, zinc? I remember when every patient with a pressure injury was put on a multivitamin, vitamin C, and zinc. So what kind of evidence do we have? And the answer is like, we have practically no evidence. So is there any data to support giving patients multivitamins every day? No. If they're on supplements, they're gonna get the vitamins they need from the supplements. If they're eating a regular diet, but just not getting in enough, then yes, a multivitamin might be beneficial. But there's no evidence at this point in time that routine supplementation with the multivitamin enhances healing. So use it for patients when you think they need it, when you think they're not getting in adequate vitamins and minerals. What about vitamin C? So a lot of clinicians believe patients should be getting vitamin C on a routine basis if they have open wounds. That's based in part on the fact that wound exudate has pretty high volumes of vitamin C. So if you have a patient with a large wound and high volume exudate, people are thinking, oh, they're losing a lot of vitamin C, we should replace it. But remember that vitamin C is in all kinds of things. It's definitely in supplements. It's in a lot of the foods and fluids we drink. So again, do you need to routinely supplement with vitamin C? No, you would use it if you had a patient where you had specific concerns that they were not getting in enough vitamin C. What about zinc? Well, we know zinc deficiency interferes with healing. We also know that excess levels of zinc interfere with healing and reduce appetite and cause GI disturbances. And zinc is not water soluble. So if you take in too much zinc, you do end up with high levels of zinc. Now it would be great if we could do a blood test for zinc levels, but there are no consistent, consistently reliable tests for zinc levels. So at this point in time, the recommendation is, if you have a patient who's been on a deficient diet for a number of months, so you have good reason to suspect that they're zinc deficient, or if your agency has a reliable serum zinc test and you know they're deficient, then yes, you should provide zinc supplementation at 220 milligrams a day for typically two weeks. Now, what would make you think that the patient's zinc deficient? What kind of foods are high in zinc? Well, it's usually your meats and your beans and peanut butter, that kind of thing, your high protein foods. So if your patient's been eating very little for a matter of months, they've been losing weight for several months, then yes, they are almost definitely zinc deficiency and zinc deficient and you would wanna do two weeks of supplementation. What about appetite stimulants? A lot of our patients tell us they have no appetite. The chemistry of chronic illness results in anorexia. Would it help to put them on an appetite supplement or stimulant like Megase or Periactin? 
maybe for selected patients, but you know, there's a lot of contraindications to those medications. So you would definitely make that recommendation only after discussion with the patient's medical team to see would this be appropriate for this patient, and you would monitor outcomes. So we talked a little bit about enteral feedings. We said, yes, they're potentially beneficial for patients who cannot consume adequate nutrients orally. They can't, even with the use of supplements, they just can't meet their caloric and protein intake needs. So if you're gonna pursue enteral feedings, it should be done in collaboration with the nutritional support team. It will be up to the nutritional support team to select the best formula to determine initial rate and the rate at which the volume should be advanced. Now, we know that the two major complications of ventral feedings are aspiration and diarrhea. So yes, we're gonna keep the head of the bed elevated. We're gonna monitor the patient for feelings of fullness, nausea, vomiting. We're gonna do everything we can to prevent diarrhea. So, if the patient starts to have diarrhea, we want to rule out C. diff. Most of the time it is not C. diff, but you wanna make sure. If you have a patient who's been NPO or has had minimal intake for a number of weeks, then you wanna start with a very slow rate, and this is why. You know that the small bowel is lined with villi. And villi are little projections in the mucosal layer that significantly increase absorptive surface. And so normally they're standing tall, waving around, competing with each other for nutrients. But if no nutrients come down the line for a prolonged period of time, after a while they get hypoglycemic and they sit down. And then they lie down, and now you've got a flat surface. So now, if I start the patient on enteral feedings, I don't have this absorptive surface, I have this absorptive surface. So there's definitely, initially, gonna be some malabsorption and some diarrhea. I should not stop the feedings because what's going to cause these villi to stand back up is exposure to nutrients. So I just wanna give it at a slow rate. If I do, the villi will start to be like, hey, what was that? Was that food? Should I sit up? Should I stand up? So you restore the height of the villi, you restore absorptive capacity, but it takes time. So if they have been NPO or had absolutely minimal intake for a number of weeks, start low, go slow. And finally, if you're putting a patient on enteral feedings, look at their medications. Some patients are on meds that have a lot of sorbitol as a sweetener, and sorbitol is a very powerful laxative. So you might need to change around some of their medications. So in summary, if we want this wound to heal, not only do we have to correct the causative factors, not only do we have to provide appropriate topical therapy, but we've got to stand back and look at the patient and think about what's going on systemically that might impact on repair and what do I need to do in relation to those factors. I wanna focus on perfusion and oxygenation, particularly important if I'm dealing with a lower extremity wound. Is this patient a smoker? If I'm in an outpatient setting and my patient's a smoker, spending time talking with the patient about that, 
seeing if they're willing and ready to try to reduce or eliminate tobacco use. I want to do everything I can to help them meet that goal. Where do they stand nutritionally? What's happening with their weight? What does the wound look like? What do they look like? I should do an assessment. I should intervene based on my assessment findings. Glycemic control, what's our goal? 100 to 140, definitely under 180. We want to think about topical vitamin A if we have a patient on steroids and their wound is not responding well, and we want to manage any comorbid conditions. So it's a lot, right? A lot to do, a lot to think about, and it means we have to work very closely with all other members of the team if we're going to get our patient where we want them to go. Okay, that's it for nutritional management and systemic support. In the next class, we'll talk about wound assessment.